Let's open the word. Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for another beautiful day. Thank you again for your continuing love and for the staff we have here at church. Thank you for the leaders. Pray for them as they deliver the message today. And open up our hearts to the word that you have for us this morning. Thank you for your blessings. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So I, I normally start in a song, but I'm not going to start in a song. <laughs> Although we could, we could read, uh, if, you, if you wanted to, on your own. And I could, pardon? Oh, I'm going to read what I'm going to read. But I'm going to also give you a couple of bookmarks in the Psalms that you can read on your own. Uh, last week we read Psalm 132. That's a psalm that talks about the section of the Bible that we're looking at. It's a, a song of ascent. The, um, the Jewish people would sing that when they were making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So Psalm 132 is about the passage we're looking at this morning in 2 Samuel. And also Psalm 89. In fact, Psalm 89, which is the psalm of Ethan, is a retelling of uh, the promise that we're reading about this morning at the time of when they went into captivity. So it was a very important time that they needed to be reminded of what God was doing for them. So Psalm 89. But we're not going to read either of those this morning. We're going to actually take a look at Isaiah 55. But before we read Isaiah 55, I'd like Michael to read... Isaiah 41.10, because he's had 41.10 in his claw all week. So if you want to read that, Mike, and then someone read Psalm 55, or not Psalm 55, Isaiah 55. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be anxious, and do not be anxious to look about you. For I am your God, I will strengthen you, I will surely help you. I will surely uphold you with a righteous right hand. Do you want to read Isaiah 55? Isaiah 55. Oh, every word of service comes to wine. For you who have the money come, buy me. Come by wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not good? You wait for what is not satisfied. Listen carefully and eat what is good, and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen, and you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, according to the faithful mercies shown to David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader of commandment for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you. Because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will, he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without water. 
making a barren cloud, and furnishing seed to the soul and bread to eat it. So shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains of the hills will bring forth into shouts of joy before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. And instead of the death, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. Amen. Uh, I, I chose both of those passages this morning, not just because Michael was uh, had it in his claw on Isaiah 41.10, but both of them kind of set the, the context for uh, what we're going to look at this morning, which is one of the, the central uh, portions of the Bible. It's what is often referred to as the, the Davidic covenant or the covenant made with David. So it was a covenant between God and the chosen king that he uh, was announcing and anointing. And we understand that uh, this is the initial um, development of the concept of Messiah for the Jewish people. And we understand Messiah from a different point in history. We understand Messiah from these prophecies having been fulfilled. And uh, the expression of God's um, providence and sovereignty over history, which is kind of what we read about in Isaiah 55. He says, first he says, pay attention. Why are you doing these stupid things? Uh, That's my paraphrase. Don't spend your money for what's not bread your wages for what does not satisfy. In other words, don't, don't fall into this false world view, but rather incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Now, this everlasting covenant with you is you. So God's making you an eternal promise according to the faithful mercies shown to David. That's what we're going to look at this morning is the faithful mercies shown to David. To David. He says, Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know. A nation which knows you will, uh, knows you not will run to you. So it's talking about all the nations of the world, those that you know and those that you don't, are going to come to the Lord. Because the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, He has glorified you. And this helps us understand who Israel is. You know, we understand that there's a lot of press today about what's going on in the Middle East. Um, if you listen to the rhetoric, uh, uh, Aminijab, Aminijab, yeah, has uh, been, he was to the UN and, and gave a lot of uh, interviews with Western press, and it's really interesting to listen to the guy talk, because he is a master at not answering the question. And it's interesting the questions that he answers. Um, And then, of course, we all harp on the ones he doesn't answer. But uh, what's happening is an escalating tension in the Middle East between Israel and the surrounding nations, Arab nations. 
And Israel is calling it a red line because of the development of, or potential development of nuclear weapons uh, by Iran. They see that as a tipping point in the area. And they're threatening a preemptive strike. Right? So you read the news, that's what's going on in the world today. And this tension is escalating because they've made the claim, and it's probably valid, that uh, Iran is at a point where if they cross this line, which will happen very shortly, and they may have already crossed it, they'll have the materials necessary to complete uh, a weapon that really only has offensive value. And uh, they, based on the, the things that they've said about Israel, Israel believes that they would use it, so they would make a preemptive strike to destroy the program at this point in history. Now, if you read the Bible, you understand Israel. God said, I didn't choose you, as it says here, um, to represent your uh, God to the nations. I didn't choose you because you were big and powerful and beautiful and good. None of those things are true about Israel, right? They're not big. They're a little tiny nation. And uh, I'll give you some perspective on how little tiny they are. Okay, this is the area that we've been talking about uh, in our study so far. you got Jerusalem here. you got the Philistines that were coming around down here. I'm going to go ahead and get the pointer up. So, okay, so you got uh, Jerusalem here, and this is where they're fighting the Philistines, and this is the Benjamin Plateau where most of the stuff that's been going on that we've been reading about. And you got Bethlehem here and uh, the area of Judah here. Let's take a look at what that really is in the world. Yes. Yes. Well, and if you listen to uh, you know the president of Iran, he frames it in such a way that uh, they have absolutely no right, uh, historical or any other way. And I and I listen to what he says, and I I think well, there's some merit to that because Israel was given the land by God, and they came in and conquered it from other peoples. Well, if you don't believe in that God, uh, then they would have no legitimate claim, uh, and that's what they're claiming. This is Israel today, right? This is Jordan right here, and this is over here is Egypt. Let's take it a little bit further out. So here's the, the Middle East region where all this is going on. You see a larger portion of northern Africa, a little bit of uh, northern Egypt. This isn't even all of Egypt. And then you see uh, the areas that are uh, the southern parts of Europe and Turkey. And so you read about the Turkish response. Actually, that was Turkey. It was in the southern parts of Europe. Let's move out a little bit further here. This is the Mediterranean area, and this is as far out as I can go. So here you see this little tiny, little tiny strip of land here, uh, surrounded by what is a fairly large, apparently uh, in this map, area of the world. And this is just a small little slice. This is just northern Africa. That's all this is in the Mediterranean Sea, which if you look at the, the uh, wadi, bodies of water in the world, this is a very, very small one, right? So this little tiny place with this very, very few people um, is the center of what's going on. Oop, 
Now I'm way out of where I am. It's what happens when you click your mouse. Then make that the center. So we're going to make Israel the center of the world for our discussion today, which I'm sure they would love that. Um, so what is wrong with what's going on in the news today and the picture of reality that's being painted for us? This isn't answering your question, but I have a question. Okay. When was Isaiah written? When was Isaiah written? Isaiah was written, Isaiah was uh, a contemporary of Hezekiah. So when you read through the story of the kings, you read about Isaiah and Hezekiah. Hezekiah was king when the Assyrians came in and uh, besieged Jerusalem. So that would have been about 720 B.C. So that was about 120 years before uh, the captivity of the Jews in Babylon. So it's, it uh, very significantly predates when Cyrus would have been king, who's a Persian king, and you read about the prophecy of, of Cyrus uh, a little bit further back when it talks about the, the servant and uh, God's deliverance of his people. And that's why some people think that uh, Isaiah was written in two parts, that there's two Isaiahs, and that one Isaiah was after the captivity because clearly a human couldn't know those kinds of things in advance. Right? They say the same thing about Daniel, by the way. Uh, and so, you know, but we, we believe that that's 720 BC. So I'll go back to my question. I'm curious to know why you asked that. But uh, the question is, what's wrong with, one, the Jewish response and the way that, that uh, the reality of the world is expressed today? What's wrong? Yeah, we're in control. It's up to us. And that we're going to determine the destiny of the, of the world. The future is in our hands. Right? So Israel is saying the future is in our hands. We need to make a preemptive strike in order to preserve our nation. What does the Bible say is going to preserve their nation? The hand of God. Which is why Isaiah 41, 10, is so appropriate. As Michael read, and he's been hanging on to it. <laughs> Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be anxious. Look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So when he talks about his righteous right hand, what is he talking about? Does anybody know? Pardon? His strength and his power. The, uh, the right hand is considered the place of strength. So Benjamin, so if we're looking at the, the Benjamin Plateau here, now I can go in a little bit more. The Benjamin Plateau was given to the, the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the 12th of Jacob's sons, and his mother died in childbirth, if you read the story. And she named him uh, 
a name that reflected her suffering, and Jacob named him a name that reflected his function. So he named him uh, Benjamin, which is son of my right hand. In other words, this is my strength. And so Benjamin is the son of right hand strength of Jacob. And that's why it was such a critical piece, that tribe of Benjamin, in all of this story. Right? How does Benjamin fit into this? And Jerusalem is in the territory of Benjamin, interestingly. Even though a king of Judah would be the one who reigns there. So we see all of this kind of intrigue that God's built into the history that he's unveiling for us. Um, the son of the right hand, the place of strength, is also the place that's given to Messiah. You read in uh, Psalm 110, and this is the most quoted psalm, I believe, in all of the Bible. You read, uh, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over the, a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is a very strong statement about what the king would do in the presence of his enemies. And this king, it starts out, it says, The Lord says to my Lord. Now, if you have a, a King James Bible or an NASB Bible or one of those Bibles that... Uh, uses caps, capital letters, to give you a, a hint at the underlying language, you'll see that the first Lord here is in all caps. And that is the way that they express in the, in the King James or in the English translation that that name for Lord is the name that cannot be spoken. It's the name that was given to Moses when he met God at the burning bush. God said, I am that I am. Right? And... He's saying that I'm the self-existent one. I am God Almighty. I am transcendent, the creator of all things. And that we transliterate today because the Jews couldn't say it. In fact, they, they think we're terrible because we do say it. We put the vowels of the second word for Lord in there, which I'll go into in a second, in with the consonants, and they get the, the pronunciation Yahweh. Right? So these four letters that can't be spoken with no vowels is uh, translated capital L-O-R-D, all caps. Right? It says, the Lord said to my Lord, and if you look at that one, it has a capital L, but the rest of the letters are lowercase. And the reason why is because in the Hebrew, rather than being the name of God that can't be spoken, it's the name of God that can be spoken among men. It's Adonai. And what they, what they did for us is they took the vowels from Adonai and put them with the consonants of Yahweh, and that's where we get the pronunciation Yahweh. Those are actually the, the vowels out of Adonai. The first name is the name of the transcendent God, the one who sits in heaven. The second name is the name of God among men. So 
the Lord in heaven says to the Lord on earth, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, if you go to Acts and it says that Jesus ascended, where did he ascend to? He ascended to the throne room of God. He took the seat, which is at the right hand of God. He is the strength of God in history, in this world. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Very powerful statement about who this Messiah, this Adonai, is. It says, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. Let's take a look at Zion. Uh, one of these here will be a picture of the, the temple. This is the Temple Mount in the day of Jesus. This area just outside the temple here, right here, is called Mount Zion. It's where a majority of the population lived. It's right next to the city of David, which comes down here. We've been talking about the city of David. It says, um, The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. And if you read prophecies about Messiah, for example, 7.10 in Daniel, and I'll go ahead and, and read that for you so that you have a, a clear picture of who this Messiah is, because this is the one that's being talked about in our passage of Samuel today. If you go to Daniel chapter 7, and you read about the vision that Daniel had, and what I'll share with you is that this vision um, was given to the nations. Okay, so Daniel is written in a couple of different languages. It's written in Hebrew and it's written in Aramaic. And this is in the Aramaic portion of Daniel. So this prophecy of Messiah is actually given to the nations. You read in, in chapter 9, verse 7 of Daniel, and I'm going to read through the end of 14, and especially 13 and 14, because they're very critical. This is Daniel's vision. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the ancients of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him, and thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's who this Messiah is. He's one called the Son of Man. If you look at Matthew, and I know I'm doing some hopscotch this morning, and we're not in 2 Samuel yet, but you're going to see how all this lands right in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you go to Matthew, uh, chapter... Where were we at the other night, Mike? 
26? 24 and 26. Yeah, 24 and 26. So in cha chapter 24, no, it was in chapter 22, excuse me. Okay, chapter 22 of Matthew, um, Jesus has been um, consistently harangued by the Pharisees and the Sadducees trying to trick him up by asking him tough questions, right? And the Sadducees, who don't believe in, in the resurrection, so they don't believe in life after death, essentially, um, other than on, on earth. So the Sadducee view of life at this point in history was that what you did in this life was important because it determined what the generations to come were going to inherit. But for you, it had no value because there was no... Uh, eternal life. There was no life after death. There was no resurrection. And that's why they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in God. But they, they came to Jesus and they asked him what they thought was a trick question. They said, you know, a man uh, had a wife and he died and under the rules of levirate marriage, his brother married the wife and then he died and then his brother came along and married and there were seven brothers and so seven husbands to this wife. And he asks the question, he says, uh, in the resurrection, um, whose wife, this, I'm backing up a little bit to verse 28, chapter 22, says, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her, right? And Jesus said, you don't understand anything about the nature of the kingdom of heaven or the, uh, the scriptures nor the power of God. And then he talks about the resurrection. And he gets down to a point where the Sadducees basically had to shut up because they figured out we can't ask him a, a question that he can't answer from Scripture giving a correct answer. So then the Pharisees gave it a shot, right? And they're the guys that know the law, right? So they came up. Uh, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, I'm looking at verse 34, they gathered themselves together. So they had a huddle, right? One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this summer we had a preaching series called The Summer of Love. These verses were actually preached. I don't know if you remember that or not. But that's what this is about. What Jesus said is the most important thing in the law. He says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? That is the Greek word for Messiah. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. He quotes Psalm 110. He quotes scripture about how this one that is the Messiah, the son of David, could actually be God. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. <laughs> that was the last time that they tried to trick Jesus and prove that he was not Messiah. The next time that Jesus speaks on the matter 
is in chapter 26 when he's on trial before the high priest. And in Matthew chapter 26, if you flip over to verse uh, 62, is where I'll start. Verse 62, the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Because if you recall the story of Jesus on trial, they brought false witnesses against him and were accusing him of all sorts of things. And he's saying, aren't you going to answer? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So they understood Messiah to be the Son of God. Where did they get that from? Daniel, from prophecy. From David, from prophecy. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. In other words, yep, it's what you just said. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You see how this is all kind of linked together? The very words of Jesus are affirming that which we've been given a preview to in the scripture through prophecy. God's revealing himself in his eternal plan. That's why when we read in Isaiah 41.10, where it says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Who else would you want with you? Do not anxiously look about you, or do not be anxious. Look about, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let's look today at who that righteous right hand is and where that was promised that that person would be there to be our help through thick and thin. Let's turn to 2 Samuel, chapter 7. Pardon? Getting to wait, yeah, wait. Sorry. <laughs> I do tend to go on with the introduction, but uh, what, what that does is it allows you to read this with this context in mind. With the eternal context that God has set, I'm giving you the, the end from the beginning. Right? And that's what Isaiah said God does. He can see the end from the beginning. And he's telling us the end from the beginning. We are incredibly blessed people. So if you go to 2 Samuel, chapter 7, we'll go ahead and, and read the whole thing. I'll give you a preview last week. We'll actually read the whole thing. Now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within ten curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. 
Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded my shepherd, uh, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name, like all the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may live in their own place, and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares uh, to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet, this was ins- insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. For the sake of your word, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason you are great, O God. There is none like you. There is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation on earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make a name for himself, and to do great things for you and awesome things for your land, before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. Now, therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever, and do as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified forever by saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing may the house of your servant be blessed forever. So when you read that, it's really two parts, kind of three parts. There's the the preface to give you the 
the context of where David was hearing this word from the Lord. He was hearing the word from the Lord in a place of peace. He was hearing it when God had uh, established his people and his nation according to his word. So, and, and that's what you read in the first part. All of this happened because of the hand of God. David takes no credit for it. And the narrator that captured this for us doesn't give David any credit for it. He said, God did this. He didn't have to do this, but God did this. He did this according to his word. And that's the context, is that God did this. God is active in history. He's doing what he said he would do from the very beginning to this moment. And not only that, but he now is going to give us a picture of what's coming in the future. And then we get from verse 8 through 17, you get the actual revelation that was given through Nathan to David from the Lord. When you read that, there are some things that are going to pop out that we're going to take a look at here in a minute. I guess I should get to the third part. third part is David's response. So you understand that there's context setting, so the narrator is trying to give you a, a good picture of where this is happening in history. Then there's the revelation of God, which is prophetic. It's God speaking to us. And then in David's classic style, you hear his response. And that's what most of the Psalms are. It's a response of God's people to his revelation. And so this, from 18 through the end of the chapter is David's response. And you'll notice, we'll compare and contrast that with the responses of Saul. And you'll understand why David's heart was a heart after God. Yes? Okay, so this is the Davidic covenant. Yes. Yep. Uh, which is, you're saying, a central theme to the scriptures. Yep. Okay, so... In verse 16 it says, In your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Yep. Okay. So forever isn't done yet. Mm -hmm. Talking about today that in the Middle East, I mean, Israel just became a country in 1948. That's correct, 1948. Um, again. Um, I mean, all the countries around Israel are saying they have the rights, they don't want you know, we're going to wipe off the face of the earth blah 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 yep. okay, so my question is simply, and I know that's what's happening, I mean I have that with my boss, I know not the attack I ran here before the election <laughs> so I mean anyway, all that stuff's happening it's been happening it, I mean it's just set up for tension, no question this brother against brother. Yes. But, I'm back to the covenant. How, how did, and I, I kind of understood that the fulfillment was Christ. Right. Maybe. But, but how is the kingdom of David and his throne really established forever? Good question. I'll jump in there. It goes back to the same thing there from Psalm 110. Because Christ is the descendant of David, and he has always been on the throne. Right. His kingdom is established forever. It's like a, in one of the, uh, it's in Daniel, it says, A stone cut out without hands, 
comes crashing down right. on the statue symbolizing the Gentile world power, and it grows and fills the whole earth. He is that one. Right. Jesus is the one. He is king now. He always has been king, and he's always going to be king. Right. And whether this little patch of the universe that's in rebellion likes it or not, he is the king. And, and that is an absolutely true statement. He is the king. He will be the king. He has always been the king. So there's a great uh, secular humanist, Carl Sagan, that said the cosmos is all there is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be, right? Who created the cosmos was the question to Carl Sagan. Uh, but what we understand is that Christ is as the divine... Uh, son in the Godhead always has been always will be and has a presence in history and that's what this is actually giving us insight to is that the eternal God can actually have a presence in history and the way that that presence comes about you see that David wants to build a house for God he wants to build a temple. Because he says, you know, God has given us peace. He's kept his promise. Um, we've made God the center of our government and our lives. We've moved the, moved the Ark of the Covenant, which is the throne of God on earth, to Jerusalem, the center of God's nation, his people. And that everything would go out in the world from there go out from Jerusalem to the nations. And he says, you know, it's not right that God would dwell in a tent. So to take you to the, the picture here, this is the temple, this is the second temple, this isn't Solomon's temple, this was the temple in Jesus' time. But you see, this is the actual temple here. This is what they call the, uh, the temple area, so it was, today it's called the Temple Mount. Right down here was where David was living. In fact, you kind of see these uh, stairs going down. I can take you back to a, a picture that shows you the, um, the city of David. But David was living down here in a cedar house when he said this. And he's looking up at this hill where the, the tabernacle would reside. And when they were in threatened, they would take that inside the wall of the city. But that's where he envisioned that the, the house for God would be built. And he said, I want to build a house for God. I mean, his promise is fulfilled. He's here on earth with us. And that's what the recitation is by uh, Nathan. He says, you know, um, I didn't live in, in a box. I didn't live in a tent uh, or a house when I was delivering you from Egypt. You know, um, I didn't live there when I was visiting your forefathers, right? So he's saying, I don't live in a box. I don't live in a house. Um, so rather than you building a house for me, because I'm always with you, I'm going to build a house for you. And this is a play on words. So David already has a cedar house. But God's saying, I'm going to build a dynasty. I'm going to build, uh, in the course of human history, um, a genealogy for the forever king. That's what he's promising David. He turns David's uh, 
statement about how God could live with humanity, and he turns it over and says, I'm going to tell you the truth about how God is going to live with humanity. Yeah. Okay, so the Divinity Covenant, central theme of the Bible, we, we as Christians um, who believe in Christ, mm-hmm. who is the fulfilling king, we're kind of adopted that way. So if, if I'm the Jewish state, okay, mm-hmm. or if I'm a Jew today who doesn't believe in Jesus, right. well, you know, how do they read this? Well, do, they, do they think that God's word is true? No, they read it up through verse 15. No, seriously, they don't read verse 16. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step you through here to verse 15. If you look at verse 15, I mean, if, if, I don't know, when, as I was reading through that, did anything jump off the page and just smack you in the side of the head and say, that's not right? If this is talking about Jesus, that can't be right. How about, uh, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men. And the strokes of the sons of men, verse 14. Doesn't that just like rub against you when you're thinking, how can this be about Jesus and he's talking about him sinning? Right? Yes. So the first part of this is about building a temple among men. But if you go to Hebrews the, uh, in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews actually gives us some insight as to what the temple is. He says it's a type of what's actually in the throne room of God. And that the center of that throne room is the Holy of Holies, the the mercy seat of God, the throne of God. right? And he says, all of this is just a shadow for you so that you can have an idea of what that ultimate, more perfect reality looks like, a spiritual reality. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. But what he's telling David, is, he says, yeah, you're going to build a temple and we're going to set up the genealogy, but that genealogy until Christ comes, until Messiah comes, is imperfect. The temple was imperfect, the, the sacrificial system was imperfect, and the king was imperfect. And that's why when we think of David, now he's a man after God's heart, right? We think, yeah, but he had all these wives and he committed murder and... You know, the guy had some serious problems. Right? The king was not perfect. But if you read David's response, you see it's all about God. And it's all about what God's doing in history. And he recognizes that God is setting up the future. And he even says that. He says, you're telling me about the future. And he's not just saying that he's telling about the future of his kids. Because at this point, Solomon wasn't on the scene uh, he would yet to be born and Solomon would be the heir uh, to David's throne and then Solomon would have uh, a son Rehoboam that would be the heir to the throne and the kingdom would be split and then we'd have a whole succession of kings and the kings in the line of David in Judah um, they, if you follow that line of kings they're all related to David Guess what happens to the after the Civil War to the those that weren't of the line of David? They get wiped out. The Assyrians come in, and there is no more kings after 720 BC in the north. There is only Judah left, and that's why we call them the Jews today, They're Judites, 
They're they're not from the northern kingdoms. So there has never been a, a dynasty, a succession of kings in Israel. The first one, Saul, um, he's cut off. Uh, his daughter, Michael, has no children with David. So there is no continuance of that dynasty. Rather, there's going to be a continuance of David's dynasty. And what you see preserved throughout the Bible is the genealogy of David. So if you go to Matthew, and you look at the genealogy, what you're seeing is the genealogy of David. And uh, and I love some of the names in there. Shalatel, and Zerubbabel, and I, I think, you know, if I had another boy, I'd name him Zerubbabel. <laughs> but interestingly, what they're doing is they're showing the fulfillment of this prophecy and covenant that there would be a physical human descendant of David that would actually also be called the Son of God. And that's what verse 16 is about. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. So it's talking about when that Messiah comes, your throne shall be established forever. Not, not the human line of David, in the sense that David was a good king and that you know his descendants should reign forever, rather that God from the beginning planned that his son, the true king, would come into history through some family line. And that family line is the line of David. Not because they were good, not because they were mighty. In fact, they were just the opposite. In fact, these guys were so ungood that God had to do a total smackdown and take them into captivity and, you know, we think about the captivity of Babylon when they were taken. That was the remnant of Israel. That was all that was left. Most of, of Israel was destroyed. The Jewish nation was destroyed. And that area right there was leveled to the ground. <coughs> That's what happened when those people went into captivity. And yet there were people that were faithful in that period. And you see the faithful line. You read about a bad king called Jehoiakim, who in the, Ma- in the Matthew genealogy is called uh, Jeconiah. Uh, and if you go back and you look at the Hebrew and all that, you find out, yep, these two guys are the same guy. And he was the last true king of Israel. He was the son of Josiah. He was on the throne. And he was taken by the king of Babylon and lived in captivity in Babylon for the rest of his life. And it was his sons, so he was a descendant of David, it was his sons that then went on to go back into Jerusalem after 70 years of captivity and to rebuild the temple and ultimately rebuild the city. So you see that the first part of this prophecy and this covenant is being fulfilled. God's making a promise. And this, in a sense, is an unconditional promise. Because you remember when you study covenant, there were four aspects to that. Right? There's the definition of relationship, God and his people. 
there is the promise, and I described it in terms of a, a contract, like when you buy a house, you have a promissory note. I promise, uh, you know, to pay you if you give me this, right? So those are the terms. So there's a promise that the bank's going to fund your house. There are the terms that you're going to pay it, and if you don't pay it, they're going to come in and take it away from you and make your life miserable and all these things. And then there are the, the performance conditions that go on that, the stipulations. You'll notice in this covenant you don't have that. This is unconditional. There's a promise, there's a relationship defined, and there's a promise, but we don't see any terms here because the terms have been removed. It says, my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So this is a very, very powerful covenant that God is making. This is one that is guaranteed to happen because it is not conditioned upon us. God said, I'm sending my king and he's going to reign forever. And that's what Daniel, the passage in Daniel that we read, tells us. All nations will be under his rule. He'll rule with an iron scepter. We read in Psalm 110. That's why that's such strong language. Because this is unconditional promise. It's like the uh, covenant that God makes with Abraham uh, earlier, I think it's in Genesis 15. Right. Where he, he specifies that Abraham do something very particular. You know, the, the animals divided in half, blood flowing into a trench. The idea being that he, whoever breaks this, it will be done to him as was done to the animals. Yep. And God passes through alone. Yep. So he's saying to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and if you mess up, I'm going to pay the bill. Right. And that's what you see happening here is the same thing that God is declaring unconditionally to David. He says, now remember there's two parts here, one to the human lineage and one about the eternal dominion. Right? So looking at the human lineage, says, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people. Who did that? God did that. David didn't do that. It wasn't because he was a great shepherd and he got promoted up the shepherd ranks and then he decided to become chief of all the shepherds and then he became king. No, it didn't work like that. God chose him when he was nobody. He said, God did that. He says, I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies before you. Who defeated Goliath? Who defeated the Philistines? Who, who uh, went against the uh, Amalekites? God did. God did all of those things. Right? He said, I, I was the one to cut off all your enemies. And I will make your name great. Who's going to make David's name great? God's going to make his name great. Guess what? They still have in Jerusalem today what they think is David's tomb. And the Jews, the, the faithful ones, go to that tomb and they say their prayers and leave their, light their candles and do all the things that they're going to do because David's name is great. He is the nation of Israel. He is such a powerful leader that I was named after. <laughs> well, actually, the name, 
The name David means beloved, and my mom knew I was going to need lots of help. So. <laughs> said, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. So, can, does Israel have a right to be there today? Yes, because God put them there. This is where he said he's going to plant them. He said he would appoint a place for them and he would plant them. That they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Wow. <laughs> Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. These are all statements of what God is going to do. They're not statements about anything that any human being brings to the table, ever. So, if, if, <laughs> so we should be friends of Israel. Yes. Well, we know that. Yeah. This. Well, it says also the friend of Abraham. God and, and yeah, I mean, because friend of God. nobody around them believes in Jesus or yeah. in this, so they're friendless except for Christians. Yes. I I went way over this morning. I'm gonna I'm gonna close with this. That's absolutely correct. But it's not because we're trying to, you know, put our quarter in the cosmic vending machine and get God's blessing by blessing his people. Rather, it's because of this statement. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's in Romans chapter 8. Um, I, I uh, have highlighted this passage and I have notes on the side because that's what I do in my Bible. And I, I put shelter from the storm. That was uh, verse 31 and 32. And I usually back this up to verse 28. But um, this is the note that I wrote in my margin. At the lowest point in my life, all the things that were true about me, God knew. He loves us more than we can know. That's what the Davidic covenant tells us. We're going to talk about this some more next week because that's kind of what I do. I tend to reiterate that. But I want you to read this and read it carefully. This is a promise. This is a promise to you. That's why I started in Isaiah 55. It's you. This is really important. And it's really important today. If you don't believe that, read the news. And it shouldn't be depressing. It should be that you see God's hand in history being completed. And we need to pray for our, our city. We need to pray for our brothers and our sisters. Let's go ahead and do that right now and then we'll close Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that we could be together this morning and look at one of the central uh, promises of Messiah in the Bible, that we understand Jesus is Messiah, he is Christ, and that he uh, sits enthroned with you at your right hand, that he is our king, and he has given us the opportunity to be adopted, grafted in to uh, your kingdom. 
that he has changed our citizenship from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, to your kingdom, Lord Jesus, and we are so grateful for that. And to see this in your word given more than 3,000 years ago is just phenomenal. Um, Lord, we just are incredibly blessed, and we thank you for that. Lord, we, uh, we ask for those that don't know you, that don't know this truth, that you would use us through our lives to communicate that truth to them, however you would affect that in our workplace, in our lives with our families, um, as we're shopping at Winco, however it works, Lord, that you would use the, the evidence of our lives being redeemed by you uh, to win the world in a very troubled time. Lord, we ask for uh, your protection as we go from here. Lord, we ask for your provision. These are very difficult times. And Lord, uh, we ask for your blessing through serving us. And we have no right to ask for any of those things, but we know that you love us and care for us. So Lord, we, we do. We petition those things. And we give you all of the glory and all of the honor that your name might be exalted among all names. Lord, we thank you for this. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.